This is the Become an Unstoppable Woman podcast with Lindsay Preston, episode 118, Think Like a Girl. Welcome to the Become an Unstoppable Woman podcast, the show for goal-getting, fear-facing women who are kicking ass by creating change. I'm your host, Lindsay Preston. I'm a wife, mom of two, and a multi-certified life coach to women all over the world. I've lived through enough in life to know that easier doesn't always equate to better. We can't fear the fire, we must learn to become it. And on this show, I'll teach you how to do just that. So join me as I challenge you to become even more of the strong, resilient, and powerful woman you are meant to be. Let's do this. Ms. Unstoppable. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today I am interviewing Dr. Tracy Packiam Alloway. She is an award-winning psychologist, professor, author, and TEDx speaker. She has published over 15 books and over 100 scientific articles on the brain and memory. Dr. Alloway shares her insights about the brain with Fortune 500 companies, and her research has been used in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Bloomberg. As a teaching professor and in her private psychology practice based in Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. Alloway helps many women learn how to use their uniquely female brains to live their best lives. Dr. Alloway just published a book called Think Like a Girl, where she is talking about the 10 unique strengths of a woman's brain and how to make them work for you. When I was introduced to Dr. Tracy Alloway, I knew I had to have her on the show because we're all about the brain here, right? And how to maximize our mindset, in essence, to get the life that we want. And I loved her research. She's been running a research lab. I can't get that out for decades now about the differences between men's and women's brains. And what she has found is pretty interesting. You're going to gain a lot of awareness today just from the interview alone. Now, of course, I suggest you go get her book, but start off with this interview and really be in a headspace where you can take in what you're going to learn today because she has a lot to offer on this interview. Again, you're going to gain so much awareness that you're going to be able to start to make some big changes in your life because of it. So without further ado, here's my interview with Tracy Packiam Alloway. Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the Become an Unstoppable Woman podcast. I have been reading your book, Think Like a Girl, for the past few weeks now, and I can't wait to share it with my audience. So I'd love to just start off from the beginning. What does think like a girl mean? I really like the idea of think like a girl because a lot of times doing something like a girl has a very negative connotation. You throw like a girl, you make decisions like a girl, you're emotional like a girl. And I really wanted to explore and, you know, kind of flip it on the head a little bit and look at the science behind how a girl's brain, how the female brain actually works in a lot of different areas. And ultimately, how can we have an appreciation of the uniqueness of our brain and lean into some of those strengths. Okay, so we're going to get into all the different sections in which 
the women's brain or the girl's brain is different. So let's just jump in, Tracy, because we've got different sections in your book. So the first is decision making. So how is the female brain different in this area? So this for me was the first chapter I wrote. And it was so fascinating, Lindsay, because I really, you know, you hear all the time, oh, women make emotional decisions, or we're emotional when we make decisions. And you always hear emotions playing a role. And so I wanted to really test this. So in my own research lab, I gave my participants, both male and female, a very uh, difficult dilemma. It's called the trolley dilemma. And it's where you have the situation where this train or this trolley is hurtling at you. And it's going to injure five people, but you can save the day if you flip the track that the train is on, it will still injure one person, but you'll save five. And this dilemma is, is not one I created. It's very well known. It's even made its way in some popular TV shows. Um, but what's interesting about this dilemma is that other researchers, when they look to see how people respond to it, they show that heightened stress, that worry. So although it sounds so artificial, and you may be thinking, this is never a time in which I have to make these kinds of difficult decisions. We actually respond in a very realistic way. We show that elevated heart rate, that stress response, because we're taking this very seriously. So it seemed like an ideal uh, dilemma to present to my participants to find un to understand a little bit about how we make our decisions. Now, women, again, are often perceived as making an emotional decision. You know, they may say things like, I can't, I can't do it. It's too difficult. But what I found was that women say those things because it's stemming from a desire to protect. So we are wired where we want to protect and we want to avoid harm. So on the surface, what appears as a weak or an emotional decision is actually coming from a really powerful place. Whereas women were saying, we don't want to cause harm to anyone. We want to protect as many people as we can. Now, what was interesting in my lab is that if you're an individual and you want to flip that switch so we know that there's two decision-making pathways. There's a cold decision-making pathway, which is housed in the front of your brain, your prefrontal cortex. That's the rational decision-making center. And there's a hot decision-making center, the emotional decision-making center, which is your amygdala, your brain's emotional center. And I found that you can flip the switch simply by sticking your hand in a bucket of ice. And the reason this is so powerful is because that ice introduces a stress response and your brain responds, your amygdala specifically responds by saying, oh my goodness, I'm in some pain, acute, you know, so a small amount of pain, I better respond by kicking in my fight or flight or freeze uh, mechanism right now. And this leaves the front of your brain, your cold decision-making center available to actually consider the different possibilities and make a rational decision. So let's put this in a real world context. Let's say you've been headhunted and offered a job in a new city. Your first thought is, well, I can't leave my boss. What about my team? I don't want to let anyone down. We've worked so hard together. And so here we are, we see this mechanism of wanting to protect, not wanting to cause harm kicking in. And so it may be difficult to make a decision that is not emotional as a result. And so if you find yourself in that position and you want to be able to explore other possibilities, Find a bucket of ice and stick your hand in it for as little as one minute, and it'll flip that switch in your brain. Wow. That's so interesting. I mean, I remember reading that in the book, but like hearing you talk about it is so interesting. And it's so funny because my daughter, just weeks before I started your book, Tracy, she brought up that train or the trolley analogy. And she's like, Mom, what would you do? And I'm like, Wait a second, give me more details. Like, tell me the ages of the participants and all of that. So I feel like I got to experience it before 
And that was what, where my brain went was like, okay, tell me the ages, like how much harm is going to be created between the two, right? Well, yeah. So Tracy, let's back up for a second. Tell us about your research lab a little bit and how you kind of built that to get your research. Yes. So I've been doing this research for a decade and a half or over that. Um, what I found, what really struck me is as I was beginning to look at different scientific studies, you typically see the research as a a broad brushstroke, a one size solve. Well, we all act this way. We all think this way. And even in my own lab, I began to see nuances in some of the patterns that, of course, there are some universal themes in the way in which we think and act, but there are also differences. And some of them are hardwired, but that doesn't mean they're deterministic. We can still change. And some of them are culturally driven. And so that's why I wanted to address this idea of the myths that we believe, the stories that either we hear or we tell ourselves. And I wanted to explore the truth behind that. Is it really true that our brain does this or that, these things that we tell ourselves? And so in my own lab, I've had a chance to explore a lot of these issues from decision-making to mental health to memory and so on. So it's been it's been a lot of fun and I love getting a chance to work with different students. I'm a professor as well and we're always very hands-on in lab and, and get a chance to explore a lot of these issues together. Yeah. So when you were in your lab, did you go in intentionally saying, let's figure out the differences between a male and a female brain or did it just come out that way? It did come out that way for a lot of the time. So it wasn't even something that I set on that this was my framework. This is what I want to explore. But as part of the research, you ask for demographic questions like your age, your geographical region. And of course, do you identify as male or female? And so that gave us a great opportunity. And, and some of my data sets have over 4,000 people. So there's this huge wealth of research that I had coming from my lab, which gave me a great opportunity to, to look under the hood to kind of see how our brains are working um, with respect to all these different questions. Yeah. Okay. So then going back to decision-making and you said women are making decisions because they want to avoid harm, right? So what is the male brain? How are they making decisions? Um, so typically that stress response is very interesting. It can also flip the switch in them. And I used in the book, two different kinds of stresses. I use that physical stress, which is that bucket of ice, but I also use what's called a cognitive stress, which is where I asked my participants to count backwards from 100, but in sixes. So 100, 94, 88. And sometimes, you know, I, I get to speak uh, pre-COVID a little bit more often, but sometimes at Fortune 500 companies and we'll do this activity and you can hear that sigh in the room. The minute I say, we're going to come backwards by sixes, you hear this, this groan like, oh man, I, I can't do this already. So we know that it's a stressful activity. And in my lab, I also took a skin response where I can measure the body's physiological response to stress. So I know that not only was this activity set up to be stressful, but participants were responding in a way physiologically as a stressful situation. And, and this also is one way that you can flip the switch. So again, if you can't find ice anywhere, or you, you just want to be warm, and you don't want to feel that bit of cold, even a cognitive stressor can flip that switch in your brain as well. Wow, that's so interesting. Okay, so that's decision making for women, right? So let's talk about love. <laughs> what did you find here, Tracy? 
Um, so this is very interesting. You know, a lot of times, and I have nieces, I have, I have two boys and, and my brother uh, has nieces too. And so we get a, lo- a lot of chance to talk about their that teenage years. So they just got back from a dance and they had these fun conversations about the boys that they like and so on. And it's really interesting that I often hear people, oh, I'm looking for this type of person. You know, they have to be X or Y. They have to have a certain job or a certain level of income and so on. And certainly the research supports that this is a universal Women tend to look for status or financial stability in a male partner, and males tend to look for attractiveness in a female partner. And and again, this seems to be true across different cultures. There's multiple studies that have thousands of people doing this survey. Well, what I wanted to find out is, well, how is our brain wired? And is this really the best approach, the best type that we should be focused on? And instead of looking at these stereotypical types, if you will, what research suggests is that there is a specific personality type that could be a better indicator of relationship satisfaction. So you may have heard of the big five personality traits, things like extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness. And what researchers have identified, and I talk about in the chapter, is that conscientiousness is the number one indicator of successful relationships. And success is defined as satisfaction, that the couple rates how satisfied they are. Now, the interesting thing about conscientiousness, so some of your listeners are thinking, I have no idea what that actually means. It's typically that you're hardworking, that you're motivated to see a goal to the end. So a simple indicator that you may have heard thrown around is, is the room clean? Is your bed made? Those kinds of signs indicate that they are attentive to keeping a uh, the environment around them tidy, neat, and so on. So these are some of the indicators. Now, what's interesting is that when we're younger in our 20s, conscientiousness may look like signs of perfectionism or even you know, being a workaholic because they're so goal-driven, they're so conscientious and wanting to achieve a certain outcome that it may actually be a turnoff for some people or negative. Uh, But the good news is that trait does mellow out over age and specifically as couples who are in longer-term relationships, uh, conscientiousness ranks really high in what's an important trait because that shows as a couple, as as a unit, the two individuals are motivated to work hard at that relationship. That those are the the partners, the pairs that are saying, "Hey, you know, let's. What can we do to keep this strong? What can we do to make each other content and satisfied and happy?" So they're attentive, they're conscientious in working towards that. So that is a very interesting type to look for, simply because it may not appear attractive to some people, especially in the early stages. And you know, really, sometimes we want someone more, even slightly neurotic, because those are the musicians, the artistic types, are the ones that are, you know, a bit more interesting to us. Uh, but in fact, again, research studies show that that particular personality type is the biggest indicator in the early relationships as a negative. So people who are highly neurotic in the early stages of relationship, that's a good indicator that that's probably a sign that relationship is not there for the long term. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it it goes back to like earlier in, you know, in your twenties and even 10 years, you're like, Oh, the bad boy, right? Oh, he's so handsome. And then, cause I had a, somebody I dated from my college years who was kind of like that. And then by the mid to late twenties, I was like, Oh, okay. This is like the qualities I want moving forward. So how interesting. So let me just make sure I understand, Tracy. So what you found in the research, obviously, is that that trait is for long-term relationships, right? For the success. 
but how is the, a woman's brain different from a male's in regards to love? Is it, is that it of looking for that? No. So yeah. So I actually have two chapters on that. I talk about relationships in two parts. One, the attraction, which is what we just covered. And the second is what I call bonding, the long-term side of things. And this is where your attachment style plays a really big role. So a lot of women have what's called an anxious attachment style. So that may be, that may appear as, oh, I can't trust anyone, but they also sort of conversely, while they say they can't trust anyone, they have this desire, this need for someone to be in their life. So it's almost this push and pull. And a lot of it does have to do with our relationships with our parents when we were younger. And because it sets the framework for how we think relationships should work, the way in which we bond with our parents is the way in which we think, oh, that's how we should take it forward in a romantic relationship as well. So if your parent would kind of give you affection sometimes, but pull away other times. Then we learn this kind of anxious style where we think, have I done enough? Have I done too much? Have I made them angry? And we bring that same perspective into a relationship. But here, the tricky thing is that women with an anxious attachment style tend to seek out an avoidant romantic partner, the kind of partner that is hard to get the challenge that, oh, I got to work hard because that is the kind of relationship pattern that we grew up with, with a parent, you know, that parent may have been avoided. So we work extra hard to do something to please them to get their affection. And we think that is how romantic relationships should work too. So that is a style that we see more prevalent in women. And I think, again, the whole ethos or the whole purpose of me wanting to write this book is twofold. One, to create awareness. It's not to say that it's right or wrong, the way in which our brain is working, but to create an awareness. So with that awareness comes an appreciation. If you know this is how you are setting the template for seeking out a romantic partner, what can you do to adjust that? What can you do to accommodate that, to tweak that? Instead of being the person saying, why do I always end up with the wrong person? Why do I end up with this person that's that's hurting me, that's pulling away the minute I try to get close? And, and that may be because your idea of closeness is manifesting as an anxious attachment, that high level of need. And you're seeking out a partner that has the complete opposite, that avoidant, that's thinking, this is way too much, and it's not a good combination. So that that understanding, that awareness can really be a powerful uh, mechanism for you to say, well, what can I do to find you know, satisfaction in my relationships, to find a partner that is best suited to my needs? It's amazing how much attachment style impacts our life, isn't it, Tracy? I've done so much research, and it, it goes everywhere. And I didn't realize that women had more anxious. I just knew the stat was like 50% are secure and 50% are the unsecure, right? Or insecure. So that's interesting. And I think that goes back to like us as women tend to be more empathetic and conditioned to please. And so it's like, yeah, if something goes wrong, what did I do? Right? Sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, intelligence and the women, right? Okay. Yeah, so this is a really fun one. Uh, This stemmed from my, again, from my research lab, because a lot of my research interests and expertise is in the in the area of memory, you know, Alzheimer's, ADHD, autism, and so on. And I was curious how this 
play into play in children when we look at lying behavior. Now we all tell lies. We know all the stats. You know, maybe every one in four statements is a, is a, a non-truth if you want to frame it positively or lie. Um, so I wasn't so interested in the frequency. I was more interested in the types of lies that we tell. Because from my research, I found that this is a good sign, a good indicator of intelligence. So we know that when you are telling a lie, it does involve this kind of active memory. You have to think of what you want to say, your story versus the truth. You have to keep in mind what you think the listener knows, what you've already told them. You don't want to contradict yourself. So there's a lot of moving parts. And certainly in my research, I found the more intelligent children we're better liars. So the good news is, as a parent, if you have a, a young one that's sort of given to, to lie telling, it's not a negative thing. They do grow out of it because social pressure and so on, they're typically not encouraged for telling lies. But we do know that there are two types of lies. There's what's called antisocial lies, which are the lies to protect yourself. So if you think of it from a perspective of a child, did you eat the cookie? And they know they're not supposed to. They don't want to get in trouble. No, no, I didn't eat the cookie. Why are there crumbs in your face? Oh, I, I don't know. And so that's the antisocial lie. They want to protect themselves. The pro-social lie is, did your brother or sister eat that cookie? And they may lie to protect their sibling. No, they know they're going to get in trouble. They may not get another cookie. So they'll say, no, no, no one ate the cookie. You just forgot how many made. So that's a pro-social lie. And other researchers have found that as adults, Women are more likely to tell pro-social lies to protect someone else compared to men. Now, I wanted to trace this back in childhood. So again, this idea is, are we hardwired or is it something that we learn? And in my lab, I was looking at four-year-olds and the game was very simple. They just had to pick up a little paper ball, throw it in a basket, but the researcher's back was turned. So they could, in theory, run up and just put the ball in the basket and no one would know. And so they were asked, you know, how many balls did you make into the basket? And they got a prize if they made more baskets. So they were incentivized almost to kind of cheat a little bit. And then the researcher would do the same thing where they would throw balls in the basket. And of course, the researcher would cheat and, and kind of put the balls in the basket. And we would ask the child, did that researcher make eight out of 10 baskets? Did they really do you know that, that great of a job there? And we found the girls would be more likely to tell lies to protect the researcher than the boys in our study. So we find the same pattern, even in young girls, that we want to kind of protect our tribe. We want to protect those around us. We're looking out and we are more likely to tell a pro-social. Wow. I read that in the book, Tracy, but hearing you explain it, like it's just these patterns are coming out in all of these different areas, right? Of this protection mechanism. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay, tell us about the feeling of the women's brain. This was a really interesting section of the book to write. I talk a lot about happiness and, and also altruism. But you know, with mental health, the myth there that I wanted to address is, is it true that women are more likely to experience depression than men? And of course, there are cultural reasons for that. We're more open in talking about our feelings. So we re we're certainly rewarded for talking about our feelings more even at a young age. Um, so there's less of a stigma in discussing that. But I wanted to look from a chemistry perspective, a kind of neurological perspective, what's really happening. And I found a couple things. One research shows us that we have more, three times more receptors in our brain that are attentive to stress compared to men. So it's almost like we have a spotlight in our brain that's saying, 
oh my goodness, this is happening. And we have this elevated stress response as a result. Now, again, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is not in any way deterministic. So just because our brain is set up this way, that doesn't mean we can't overcome that. And that leads us to the second part. I found very different mechanisms in how we can protect our brain against depressive symptoms and tendencies. Now here, this is a study done. I had 3000 plus people and I was looking at men and women, asking them different kinds of questions about precursors. What happens before you actually get to that point of depression where you feel I can't get out of bed and I'm just nothing is bringing me joy anymore and what's going on here. And so again, I was using a non-clinical sample. So these were individuals who were self-reporting feeling these symptoms of depression. Now for the men, I found that if they had a sense of agency, they felt in control. Hey, I can, I can do this. I can make a change. This is what's in my power to manage and so on. That for them was a buffer, a protective mechanism against depression. But for women, it was very different. For them, the anti-buffer, if you will, was what's called rumination. This idea that they have this cycle in their brain, they can't get out of it. And we've all been there, right? You you go to an event, you're like, why did I say that? If only I said this instead. And we just can't step out of that loop that keeps playing in our brain. And this is back to this idea that in part, our brain is wired to focus on that thing. But the tip, the think takeaway that I give in the chapter was that just changing one word can help rewire your brain. So instead of saying, yes, but, so someone might say, yeah, but at least you got the interview. Yes, but I didn't say the things I wanted to say. I didn't, you know, but there's that negative, that, that rumination back again. So change the but to an and. Yes, and I got to share my expertise. Yes, and I got to network. And we know from brain imaging studies, the part of the brain that focuses on optimism and gratitude is our broker's area, our language center, which is in the left side of the brain. So there's a real power in articulating the things that you're grateful for, that optimistic perspective. And studies show that it's like a muscle. The more we say yes and in a manner of gratitude and optimism, the more activation we see in our brain, the easier it is for us to view a situation and say, you know what? That is a positive thing. That is, I'm really grateful this happened because A, B, and C. Yeah. So that's my wheelhouse, Tracy, is mindset work. And and gratitude is one of the tools that we use in my coaching program, especially with my ongoing clients. Every week they have to show up and give their wins or gratitude and a brag. And I do it too. And and more I do it, the more you find it and the less rumination that happens, right? And anytime you're shifting those really basic thoughts, it makes such a huge difference. So I love hearing that. I hope everybody listening really takes that one in. It makes a difference, right? But how interesting is that women, they ruminate more, right? Yes, exactly. And that's a great example of, you know, sometimes our brain is set up differently and that affects the way in which we view the world. So it's not just a cultural change, but it is, you know, something in which our chemistry is. But again, none of this is deterministic, which for me is so encouraging. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So the last section is being a leader as a woman. Yes. 
Tell us about this. Um, this is also a really fun one to write, you know, both as a woman in academia and which is a very male dominated environment. Typically, um, you do hear a lot. And I've heard colleagues and, you know, as I was starting to read and interview other women that are professional and good at what they do, you often hear this. Oh, well, I was told to act more like a man. I was told to dress more like a man, talk more like a man. And so I wanted to explore. Is this really true? Do we have to adopt male or masculine leader traits in order to be perceived as an effective and successful leader. And two pieces came out. One was a study done by other researchers, and they did a similar survey. They interviewed uh, and they defined masculine traits as being, you know, kind of upfront, always needing to be right, kind of setting the tone loudly. So this is how the researchers defined masculine traits. And they found that when women adopted these types of behaviors, their male counterparts actually perceived them as ineffective leaders. So there was a backlash. It was almost like, hey, there's a disconnect. We were seeing you up here, but you're acting this way, and we just don't think you're a good leader. So that was the first interesting thing that you know I was reading from all the scientific research. And the second came out, came out of my own lab. There's two different types of leadership styles. There's something called transactional, which is goal-directed, where you know, you've got a deadline, let's get it done, let's focus on the goal. And there's something called transformative, you're collaborative, you want everyone's ideas on deck, you want to kind of have that interaction. And I think the key thing to remember with leadership styles is that it's exactly that. It's a style. You're not born as one type of leader or another, and one type is not better or worse or right or wrong. It's whatever is most effective for the situation you're in. So sometimes you do have a deadline and you have to be a transactional leader. Other times it's a creative project. You want all these different opinions and you want to be collaborative and transformative. So I think the first thing to keep in mind is that it's a style that we adopt for whatever is best for that situation. And the second thing I found is that when women would adopt a style that was not authentic to themselves, they actually reported higher levels of stress and they were more likely to experience burnout. So I think that as a leader, we may feel, and this is culturally driven, we may feel a push to adopt these traits that are not authentic to our own leadership style. But the key here to remember is look at the situation. What kind of leadership style does this call for? And that is better for your perception as a leader, as well as for your own mental health as well. Yeah, so true. I mean, it goes back to what I'm always teaching, Tracy, is authenticity, being authentic. But I love hearing the research of when you are authentic, that's where you can shine as a leader, as a woman, right? If we're taking on all these masculine traits, it actually backfires on us. Yes, exactly. Right? And trust our intuition, which women tend to be better at, right? I don't know if the research backs that up, but they tend to be more intuitive, right? Yeah. Okay. So... There's so much to chew on with this. Obviously, to go get the book and learn even more, think like a girl. When is it out, Tracy? When is it available? It is out on May 4th, so it's coming right up, and I'm really excited. Okay, awesome. So obviously, they can find it like on Amazon and everywhere else. Yes, we wear books or so. Awesome. <laughs> um, and what's your contact info, Tracy? If they want to follow you. And learn more. I would love to connect with your listeners. I have a website, tracyalloway.com. Lots of fun videos up there about the brain and how it works. I would love to connect with them on social media, Dr. Tracy Alloway. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all the fun spots. Wow, Tracy, thank you so much for teaching us 
about our brains. I was so excited <laughs> to have you. I'm a big neuroscience nerd. So this is totally up my alley and I know everybody gains so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. It was so fun getting to chat about this with you. Hey there, Miss Unstoppable. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it, share it with a friend. Send them a picture of this episode via text, via email, share it on social media. I'm sure they would be so appreciative to know these strategies and tips on how to accomplish your dreams. If you are ready to guarantee you're going to accomplish your goals and dreams, then it's time to start coaching with me. In my nine-month simple success coaching system, I am going to walk you every single step of the way to ensure that you get the goals and dreams that you want. The first step is to apply for a free 60-minute consult call. Just go to lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, epreston.com forward slash apply to get started. As always, my friend, remember... You're only as unstoppable as you believe you can be. So believe in yourself. You got this.